0: and welcome to another episode of Her Head in Films. I'm Caitlin, and I'm your host. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They tend to be art house and world cinema. What makes this podcast unique is that I weave together my life experiences with an in-depth and deeply personal discussion of films. I explore the impact that cinema has on me and why I connect so deeply to it. As I like to say, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. In this episode, I'm talking about Terrence Malick's 1978 film, Days of Heaven. Set in 1916, it follows a man named Bill, his sister Linda, and his girlfriend Abby. All three of them are poor, and they go to the Texas panhandle to harvest wheat on the farm of a rich and mysterious man, who it turns out is dying. Bill encourages Abby to start a romantic relationship with this man in hopes of getting some of his wealth, but the scheme will have disastrous consequences for all of them. I talk in depth about the making of the film and why it's haunted me for so many years. There are spoilers in this episode. If you'd like to support the work I'm doing, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. You can access extra episodes, vote in polls, and much more. Go to patreon.com slash films for more information. That's patreo dot com slash films. You can also review the podcast, podcast on iTunes, please give me five stars. Tell your friends and followers about Her Head in Films, or you can follow me on social media and interact with me on there in a positive way. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, and Twitter. There are links to all my social media accounts in the show notes of each episode. I won't go on any longer. Here is my episode about Terrence Malick's Days of Heaven. I first saw Days of Heaven quite a few years ago and i think it's one of those films that it stays in your mind after you watch it and sometimes it's not until later with a film that it hits you i know that as i watched it that first time i was enamored by it and i thought it was beautiful and of course i thought it was like a masterpiece and but it i think it's one of those films for me that has sort of grown in my mind over the years, and the images have taken on a kind of quality of like a dream or my own memories. Malick's films tend to be like that for me. The Tree of Life has a very profound emotional effect on me, for instance, and Days of Heaven as well. Those two films... For me are my favorite Malick films that I've seen so far. So I guess I'm just trying to say that some films, they grow larger in your memory as time goes on. Some films you'll watch and they just kind of vanish from your consciousness. You don't think about them. It's nothing to you. And then something like Days of Heaven grows powerful and stronger and it was really wonderful to revisit the film and to re-watch it and to enter this film again. The thing about Terrence Malick for me is he makes the kind of films that you turn your phone off for. You just watch them and you want to be alone with them. While I was watching Days of Heaven, I just put the phone away. (laughs) I didn't want to look at it. I did not want to be connected in that way. I only wanted to be connected to this film. I feel like his camera reaches into the world I think he has a stunning vision of life and the world and time and history. His films are so diverse and different. He's covered everything from war to the new world with like Pocahontas to this film, Days of Heaven. He has such diverse subject matter in his films and yet they are all connected through his vision and what he brings to each film. Sometimes as I research a film and I learn more about it, and I learn more about the director, I just come to love it even more. Like as I get immersed and I really start digging in, I realize how much the film means to me. Because if you don't care about a film and you're not interested in it, then when you're doing research, it's going to be more of a labor or a bore Or, oh gosh, I have to read about this film that I'm not really that into. With Malick's films, I find myself eagerly seeking out other people's writing about them and writing about him. Like, I want to hear people's views and opinions and thoughts about his work. Not necessarily the negative stuff. I know we don't all like the same directors, but it's powerful to come across people who get his films and who love them as much as I do and connect to them. I've by no means seen all of his work. I really haven't seen anything past The Tree of Life. And I know that those are some of his most contentious films at times. Uh, Some people like them. Some people don't. Everything pre-Tree of Life seems to be more popular or more lauded at times. It just depends. I'm just trying to say that in the process of doing this episode and doing my research and preparing to talk about Days of Heaven, I actually realized that Malik was more important to me than I realized. I had not watched a Malick film in quite a few years. I just had not gone really deep into him and given his work the sustained attention that it deserves. The Tree of Life is a top three favorite film of mine and in the process of researching that film, it got even more important for me and I will have an episode about The Tree of Life available soon. So I don't know, it's it's just been an interesting process to watch his work to explore it to be inside his vision and to realize oh he's more important to me than I even realized and it's just been really rewarding and enriching to learn about his work and I'm gonna continue that I definitely want to hopefully eventually see all of his films he just has this vision that i love entering and exploring he has a very poetic style of filmmaking I think and it it seems cliche to say that what does it mean for a film to be poetic. It seems like people always say that about certain films, but for me with Days of Heaven, you just, you know it when you see it, right? When it comes to poetic cinema. For me, with Days of Heaven, both image and voiceover have the quality of poetry. It's the images in tandem with what Linda Manns throughout the film is saying and the way she says it. There is definitely a primacy of image over dialogue, but I think they're interconnected in this film. The images are poetic. The voiceover sounds like poetry. Poetry often captures singular moments and then the poet compiles them together. For me, poetry is the compression of life. It's full of intensity because of its brevity. A poet is putting things in a few lines that some people it takes them paragraphs to do or you think of haiku everything that is poured into three lines and how those lines will stay with you and how they will say things that are a revelation all in three lines You create meaning often from poems. You create the meaning on your own. The meaning is not necessarily explicit. The poet is not necessarily explicit. There is a subtlety there and an ambiguity. The way that that would translate to cinema for me would be putting in one image all all these emotions or all these ideas just within a few images like the way an actor is looking at another actor or you could you could say it in a million images in days of heaven you know a close up of linda manz's face or a moment, the moment when Beale, played by Richard Gere, realizes that Abby is in love with the farmer and he's talking to her about it and talking about how he didn't know how good he had it with her because he's the one that encouraged her to get with the farmer. And there's a look on Richard Gere's face and it says everything on his face. That's the brevity I'm talking about. Or if you think about the silhouettes um, during the fire with the locusts, seeing the silhouettes against the fire, you know, seeing, for instance, the image of the house in the field of wheat, just that one house towering there in that ocean of wheat, that's a poetic image to me. It is one image and it just says so much. Plot is not necessarily the point and not in this film. It's there. It's there much more than it is in some of Malick's later films. A coherent story is not necessarily The point because life is not coherent except in retrospect, I think. In the moment, it's all glittering, blinding chaos that we're living through, and then we impose a coherence or a narrative later on. And there certainly is a narrative in this film, but this film also tells the story through imagery and through this very poetic voiceover. And I wanted to share a few quotes just to set the mood and I just, I love these quotes and I wanted to share them before I got into talking about Malik and his filmmaking and the making of the film and things like that. And these quotes are from a really excellent book called Terrence Malik Rehearsing the Unexpected. I did a lot of research and I read quite a few books and skimmed through quite a few books and this one, Rehearsing the Unexpected, was by far my favorite. It's not an academic approach to Malik's work. Um, it's not even a critical approach. It's more of an oral history. It takes excerpts from interviews of people talking about working with Malik on various films, up until The Tree of Life. That is the time that it covers. So in one interview, Richard Gere said, quote, I don't think Terry even talked with me about the story. Terry doesn't talk about those things. It probably makes him very good as a filmmaker because films are not about talking. It's about images and feelings and moments. It's not even about story in the end. You don't remember stories as much as you remember a moment in a movie that somehow cuts through everything else like a dream image, unquote. That's what I was trying to say about the poetry of Terrence Malick's films, particularly Days of Heaven. And then Sam Shepard had this to say in another interview, quote, One time, Terry said something to me about the past that he prefers the past that he wanted to be in the past. He thought that there were more possibilities because of memory and time, time passing. It's about something recalled, something coming back, something that occurs in time. You don't get that chance so much in a contemporary film, unquote. Malick is very concerned with the past. Many of his films are set in the past, whether it's during the Second World War or during the times of John Smith and Pocahontas, or in the 1910s, like with Days of Heaven, or in 1950s Texas with The Tree of Life. He's always engaging with the past. He's interested in the past and its effect on us. And I wonder if that's another uh, aspect of this film that's so powerful, is that it is set in the past. It's set in the 1910s. Even though it's set back then, it has some kind of timeless universal quality to it as well. So I want to give a little bit of background about Terrence Malick about the making of the film, and then I'll share with you my analysis of the film and what I feel about it, what I think about it. Terrence Malick is a notoriously private person. Few images or videos even exist of him. One of the few videos of him that does exist was actually called by the gossip uh, show or the gossip website TMZ. And it shows him with Benicio Del Toro. There's a really lovely clip of him on YouTube of him dancing. I think it's called Terrence Dances or something like that. And it shows him like in a club or a honky tonk. And he's just dancing with his wife in Texas. It's really adorable. Uh, From what I can tell, people speak well of him. But because he is reclusive, or maybe he's not reclusive. I don't know if that's the right word to use. He's just not interested in doing interviews or being a public figure. And I think in this day and age, especially with social media and the cult of personality, so many directors are on social media. Or not necessarily that, but they have no problem doing interviews. Most directors love talking about their work and and talking about themselves, right? And somebody like Terrence Malick, who is heavily revered and admired. Anybody would want to interview him, right? Like he's not somebody that would be neglected or like nobody cares what he thinks. Many people would want to talk to him, would want to do films about him and write books about him and have him participate. But he's just, I don't think he's in love with himself in that way. I don't think he has a big ego in that way either. He just doesn't want to be a public person. He doesn't want to talk about his films. There are criteria collection editions of most of his films, or many of them. It's one for The Tree of Life, The New World, The Thin Red Line, this one, Days of Heaven, and I used a lot of the resources from the, the Criterion Collection edition of Days of Heaven. I think they've released Badlands too. A lot of his films... He does not participate in those. He doesn't do a director's commentary. He doesn't do an interview. I dream of him doing director's commentaries. I think that would be amazing. He just prefers to let his work speak for him. And I think for a lot of people, the silence only deepens the mystery surrounding him. I don't mind that he's reclusive. I mean, what could he possibly say in words that would rival what he's put on the screen? The films are his voice. And I'm okay with that. He was born in 1943. He spent his childhood in Texas, where Days of Heaven is set, and also in Oklahoma. He had two brothers one of which died by suicide, he didn't start out as a filmmaker. He actually went to Harvard as a philosophy major. He was a Rhodes Scholar. He taught at MIT and translated some of Martin Heidegger's work. All of this is according to a book called The Cinema of Terrence Malick, another book that I read. Malick did get into filmmaking when he attended a program at AFI, the American Film Institute, that was open to students who were not majoring in film but were majoring other subjects. That program was spearheaded by George Stevens Jr., the son of the director George Stevens. And from what I can tell, what I read, he was interested in the way people who don't have a film background would approach cinema. And what they would create. So Malik was not necessarily a film buff or a cinephile. I think he obviously knew of arthouse film. Knew of European film. And I'm sure he had a, somewhat of an interest in I mean he had to have some kind of interest in film right. But he just didn't major in it or pursue it as... His life's work until this class, and he was coming to film as a philosophy person. Now, there are philosophical and, and um, biblical aspects to Days of Heaven and to all of Terence Malick's films. I'm just going to be upfront, I'm not talking about that in this episode. I don't have a background in the Bible, I don't have a background in philosophy. I even tried to read some of the books that were approaching Malick from a philosophical viewpoint, and I found that. Them impossible to read. I think of myself as an intelligent person, but I am not an intellectual. I'm not an academic. I am not able to understand that language. It hurts my head, literally. It's just not my strength, not what I'm good at. I'm much more of a romantic. I'm an emotional person. I approach film from a more personal, emotional viewpoint. And so I'm not going to be talking about the Bible and all kinds of philosophical concepts. I am going to talk about Terrence Malick's films and Days Days of Heaven in particular, just from the perspective of my thoughts and feelings about it and what I see in it. This program at American Film Institute was really important. And according to that book, Terrence Malick Rehearsing the Unexpected, quote, seminars were held by filmmakers like Harold Lloyd, King Vidor, George Stevens, William Wyler, Billy Wilder, Federico Fellini, and Ingmar Bergman, unquote. That's how they learned to make films, really. They None of these people were from a film background. They were from philosophy or writing or, or something like that. I, as a concept, I find that fascinating because I'm a cinephile, but I have more of a background in literature. That's what I majored in in college. That's what I have a degree in, as well as women's studies. So I come at film not really from the perspective of a film studies person or a film scholar or a film historian, but more as a writer and just from a personal perspective because film has. been really important to me in my life and has been a big salvation for me. So Terrence Malick was selected for the first class of this program that was ever taught. Paul Schrader was in that same class and so was Caleb Deschanel. He's a well-known cinematographer. He's also the father of Zoe Deschanel. And later on, years later, David Lynch would also be part of this program. So it's produced quite a few important filmmakers. The class set him on the path of being a a filmmaker, but up until The Tree of Life in 2011, Malik only made a few films. He made Badland, Days of Heaven, The Thin Red Line, and The New World. That's it. And actually, Days of Heaven was such a grueling or difficult experience for him that he did not make another film for quite a few decades up until The Thin Red Line in the 90s. There was something about the experience of this film that was really off-putting or difficult for him. In the research I did, I couldn't exactly find out what that was or why it was so bad. A lot of the people talk fondly about the experience. Sam Shepard did. Richard Gere did. I don't know. I'm not sure everything that happened on the set. And I read like a passing thing in an article that mentioned Richard Gere, um, and maybe Malick had a difficult experience with him, but Gere has not mentioned that in any of the interviews about the film. So I'm left wondering what exactly it was, but something about Days of Heaven. I think he might have struggled with uh, producers as well, I'm not sure, but something about it. Now since The Tree of Life, he's made a lot more films in the past decade than he did in the previous several decades. He's made To the Wonder, Night of Cup, Song to Song, Voyage of Time, most recently A Hidden Life. And he's probably working on something else as well, I'm sure. He's been much more productive. I mean, the quality of some of those films may vary. I know that critics have different views on them. I can't say because I haven't seen them yet. So I want to talk about the making of the film and some behind the scenes stuff and things like that. There was an inspiration for this film. In a Texas Monthly article about Malik. it says, quote, In his last published interview in 1979, Malik gave a sense of how he saw his city back then. It was in Alston that I had the idea for days of heaven, he said to the Paris Daily Le Monde. I found myself alone for a summer in the town I had left as a high school student. There were those green undulating hills and this very beautiful river, the Colorado. The place is inspired and inspiring, unquote. When they say his city, they mean Austin. I'm pretty sure Malik still lives in Austin. And also from the same article, this was another inspiration, quote, upon graduation, Malik and a high school classmate decided that they'd spend their summer harvesting wheat in North Texas, where the prep school boys worked alongside hardened seasonal laborers, who Malik would later say lived on the margins of crime, fed by elusive hopes, unquote. So Malick himself worked in the wheat fields of Texas when he was younger, and I guess at some point in his life, he was in Austin, and he got inspired by that memory and thinking back to that experience, and he ended up making Days of Heaven. The title itself comes from the Bible. It comes from Deuteronomy, quote, that your days may be multiplied and the days of your children in the land which the Lord swore unto your fathers to give them as the days of heaven upon the earth, unquote. Like I said, I'm not gonna give some kind of biblical interpretation. I think there are obvious biblical allusions in the film, right? I mean, like the locusts would be a good example, but I'm just not the person to offer any kind of critical assessment of that. But it's there, you can't deny it. Wanted to talk a bit about cast. Because I'm always fascinated by casting. And I think I said this in another episode. I think casting is really crucial. I think it was my episode on Brobeck Mountain by Ang Lee. To me, casting can make or break a film. I will sometimes not watch certain films because certain actors are in them. Like, I'll be honest. I'm not that interested in To the Wonder because Ben Affleck's in it. I'm not a big fan of Ben Affleck, personally. I don't understand why Malik would cast him in a film personally, so I think actors and actresses can be pretty crucial to a film and what they bring to it, and it's always fascinating to me to learn about, oh, who could have been cast and who wasn't and, like, who was supposed to play that role. Different actors were considered for the part of Bill that Richard Gere ended up playing. They wanted, actually, like, a big name, like Al Pacino or Dustin Hoffman. Even John Travolta was seriously attached to this project, but he had to draw out when he uh, started to do Welcome Back Cotter. Can you imagine John Travolta? In Days of Heaven, it would have been a totally different film. Not that Travolta can't do serious work. I remember seeing Brian De Palma's blowout, and he's pretty good in that. It's just, I don't know. For me, Travolta, I guess I just always think of him like in Saturday Night Fever or something. I don't know. Like, I can't take him seriously at times. He was really good, though, in a film called The Civil Action or A Civil Action. That is a really good film. I've always wanted to revisit it. So Travolta has his moments I'll be honest. But I can't imagine him in Days of Heaven. At the time, Richard Gere was active in theater in New York, so he was very active in the theater world and he did plays. He had not done a lot of films. I think he had been in Looking for Mr. Goodbar. He was not known. He was not a big name at all. Days of Heaven really was his first starring role. It put him on the map. And then later, he would do American Gigolo with Paul Schrader, right? And Paul Schrader was part of that same class with Terrence Malick. I think that's kind of fascinating that really Paul Schrader and Terrence Malick are responsible for Richard Gere becoming... The big star that he became, and I will be completely honest with you. I love Richard Gere. I think he is a dreamboat. I think he is one of the most gorgeous men on the face of the earth and who ever lived. I was swooning so hard while I watched Days of Heaven. I have such a major crush on young Richard Gere. He was like 28 when he did this film. Really, the film came out in 1978, but it was shot years earlier because it was in. Post production for about two years, so really, he was even younger than 28. He was, you know, in his mid 20s. My lord, he is just gorgeous in this film. His face. I was drinking it in. I was drinking him in the whole time I was watching this. Took my breath away at times how gorgeous he was. I can't explain to you. Now, I have not seen American Giccolo, but I feel like I need to get on that ASAP and watch that. I love Richard Gere. He's a big one for me. And Paul Newman. Oh, Lord. One day I will talk about Paul Newman on this podcast because I love that man with every fiber of my being. Paul Newman is everything to me. I have an obsession. So um, Richard Gere even did some of Sam Shepard's plays when he was active in New York. I thought that was interesting. Now, the farmer was originally supposed to be older, and they wanted to make it so that Abby did not fall in love with the farmer, that it was really just about the money and stuff like that, but they decided to make him younger and for her to actually fall in love with him. I'll talk more about things that were in the script, but that got changed later on in a moment. Um, So, several actors were considered for for the farmer, including Sylvester Stallone. Robert De Niro and Tommy Lee Jones. I couldn't even believe Sylvester Stallone. I can't even imagine. Can you imagine this film with Sylvester Stallone and John Travolta? I, I like it would not even be the same film. Sam Shepard wasn't even an actor. He was a writer and a playwright. He'd only been in one film called Rinaldo and Clara apparently. Uh, Malick just really liked Sam. He liked his presence. He liked uh, his quietness and things like that. And he decided to cast him. Brooke Adams fit the image that Malick was looking for. She played Abby. He was looking for somebody dark-headed, Italian-looking. But a lot of different actresses were considered, especially um, in particular Meryl Streep, who was very early in her career at that time. Gear had a crush on Brooke Adams, and so it kind of worked out because he already kind of had an attraction to her. Linda Manns plays Linda in the film The Little Girl, and she was from New York. There was a casting call that was put out in schools, and one of Linda's teachers thought that she was a character and really suggested that she go and audition. She was very straightforward. She told Malik that she liked his script, and he pretty much immediately hired her. He did not hesitate. He loved her immediately. They actually had to change the names of the characters because of Linda. She could not remember the characters' names. She would just call them back by their real names. You know, she would call Richard Gear Richard, I guess. So what Malik did was that he changed he changed the name to Abby and Bill and then Charles was the name of the farmer even though his name is never spoken in the film and it would be ABC, Abby, Bill, Charles so that Linda could remember the name. She could just remember ABC. And that would help her. So there were a lot of things that were originally in the script, but got changed. Like I said, the farmer was supposed to be older, but they changed him young and made him younger so that Abby, it would be believable that Abby fell in love with him. In the original script, Linda was supposed to be Abby's sister not Bill's. For some reason, they changed it to make her Bill's sister. The movie originally had a lot of dialogue in it, and and the crew or the cast filmed scenes with actual dialogue. They had to remember that dialogue at the time, and then it was later all cut, and it became a much more impressionistic film, a film much more focused on imagery than dialogue from the characters. The voiceover was not in the original script. The actors were really surprised to hear it in the finished film. It was added in later and some of it was improvised by Linda Manns. I couldn't figure out how much was improvised throughout my research. I didn't know was she given a script? Was some of this just her talking in the moment? It seems to be a mixture of both. In one interview, Richard Gere said, quote, I think the voiceover was something else. That was added on later. That was not in the original script, and I think she was directed a bit in that. Although I think there was still a lot of improvisation of her looking at the film and Terry saying, well, just talk to me. What do you see up there? Talk to me about Bill. Talk to me about, you know, this situation and that situation. And she was such a kind of unique, eccentric, wild animal of a teenager that some extraordinary jewels came out of her, unquote. And also, Billy Weber, who was the editor on the film. He tells a story ab- about Linda when she does the voiceover about the apocalypse. He says, quote, she was staying with my assistant's family for a few nights and my assistant's wife would read to her own children from the Bible every night. In one night she read to them from the book of revelations about the coming of the apocalypse. The next night Linda was going to record her last night of voiceover at Terry's house, and she came over and told him that he had to listen to the story that Colleen, my assistant's wife, had told her the night before, and Terry said he really wasn't interested in it. He wanted her to do the voiceover that he had written, and she kept pushing and pushing until finally he said, okay, what? What was that she told you last night? And Linda told him the story of the coming of the apocalypse, which he recorded, and that's what's in the movie, her version of it unquote. And Sam Shepard made a neat um, observation that the narration by Linda Manns is kind of like music, that it's used in a musical way. And I, I definitely agree with that. So I think it's interesting how uh, some of what she said was improvised, and then some of it was Malick Uh, writing it for her to read. Some of it was him just talking to her and getting her thoughts and opinions about things. So it's just, it's very interesting how all of that came together and how really the voiceover was not there from the beginning. He just came up with that. I guess he was putting the film together and he was realizing it wasn't working, that there was too much being spoken. And I also remember in a Sam Shepard interview, he said something like, Malik was really wanted to make like a silent film He almost wanted Days of Heaven to be a silent film. He wanted it to just be about the imagery and what people saw on the screen. And so he was able to achieve that with the voiceover where the images become very important. But you don't lose the narrative. You don't lose uh, your understanding of what's happening and what you're looking at. The location of this film was also very important. The film had a small budget for the most part, and there were only four weeks of pre-production, which is very short. The main issue was finding really tall wheat. They finally found a place in Alberta, Canada, I think, with the right type of wheat in a community of Hutterites. The Hutterites are like this really isolated religious community in Canada, or in that particular part of Canada where the film was where the film was shot. They're similar to the Amish or the Mennonites here in the United States. They sort of live more in the past and in a way of life that is not very modern, I guess you would say. The house was not there. There weren't even roads. So they actually had to build the house from scratch. So the house that you see in the film was actually built. To me, it's very interesting how the location of the film was kind of still in the past, the way that the film is set in the past. The cinematographer on the film, Nestor Almendros, I hope I'm saying that right. If I mispronounce it throughout this episode, I do apologize. Nestor Almendros. I'm trying. He said, quote, The location the producers discovered in the south of Alberta was in an area belonging to the Hutterites, a religious sect that left Europe many years ago because of intolerance, and they really live in another age. As a community, they cultivate wide expanses of land where they grow a different kind of wheat, longer than today's strands. They make their own austere utensils and furniture. They have neither radio nor television. They eat natural food, which makes their faces different from ours. Some of these people took part in the film as extras. That whole area belongs to another epoch, and an hour's travel took us daily from the 20th to the 19th century. There is no doubt that the atmosphere peculiar to this place heightened the authenticity of the images in Days of Heaven." And now I want to talk about the cinematography in the film. The film used natural light for the most part, except for some of the interior scenes. Nestor Almendros was the primary cinematographer. Scenes outside were filmed during the so-called magic hour, the time when the sun sets, but it's still light outside and you actually can't see the sun. It's just kind of there at the horizon. It's a very dreamy, golden, otherworldly type of light. You can see it at dawn and dusk This time also corresponded to when workers would rise and when they would stop working. So it wasn't arbitrary that it was chosen. It wasn't just for aesthetic reasons. The magic hour really only lasts for about 20 minutes, 20 to 30 minutes, so all day. The cast and crew would wait for that perfect window and they would film scenes during it. Many of the crew were also old-fashioned and they weren't used to using natural light. They didn't totally understand what Malick or Almendros were doing and they did get upset at times because things were not as regimented as you would normally see on a film set. Malick was not yet as improvisational as he's become with films like The Tree of Life. But it's clear that his style was developing during Days of Heaven. And he was figuring out what worked for him. Remember, he came not from a film background, but a philosophy one. He wanted to capture certain things in a particular way, and he had a different way of working. And the the old guard, the older cinematographers or the crew were not used to that. They weren't used to not having things planned out down to the last detail. He was incorporating some improvisation into the film. As I said, Nestor Almendros was the primary cinematographer, and he was there for much of the shoot. He would go on to win an Oscar, for his work on this film. He did many, many films with Francois Truffaut, and he had to leave Days of Heaven early to work on a Truffaut film. That's why he had to leave. He hand-chose cinematographer Haskell Wexler, actually a very venerated cinematographer, to finish the film for him and to keep the style similar to his. At first, Haskell Wexler wanted a co-credit, but he'd already won some Oscars himself, and he ended up changing his mind when he realized that um, Nestor really set the tone and style for the film. Wexler was essentially extending what Nestor had already created and was trying to recreate it once he left. So it's Nestor's film along with Malick's, of course. And I love this quote from Sam Shepard, quote, it was so amazing to watch Nestor because he wasn't manipulating light bulbs and fixtures. He, it was waiting for these moments and moving into these moments, and the light in Alberta was quite extraordinary. He was looking for God's light, unquote. And I tell you, if I have come... To appreciate anything more through my research on Terence Malick's films, it is the art of cinematography. And I think, in a way, cinematographers are our modern painters. They are our modern Vermeers and Rembrandts and, and our modern masters, in a way. What they do with a camera. Their understanding of light. I mean, think about the Impressionists. So much of the Impressionists were obsessed with light. They were fascinated by light, by the way that it hit water, or the way that it came through the trees, or the way that it illuminated the outside Life and nature and things like that. And I do think that sometimes you watch films and it, it you feel the artistry of them. Jack Cardiff comes to mind. I think Jack Cardiff was one of the greatest cinematographers who ever lived. He did a lot of work with Powell and Pressburger, in particular The Red Shoes and Black Narcissus. Like those two films are paintings. I mean, they absolutely look like paintings. And his work on Pandora and The Flying Dutchman is great breathtaking. I would say Nestor and the other cinematographers that Malik has worked with, they're artists. I think that they are artists. And I don't think that cinematography always gets the respect or the understanding that it deserves. I watched a documentary from 1992, I want to say, the early 90s called Visions of Light. And there's an interview in there with Nestor and they talk to other famous cinematographers. And that was really illuminating and interesting. I was just fascinated by the way that they use light and I have a deeper appreciation for what cinematographers do because of my research into this film and going forward I'll probably pay more attention to who's the cinematographer on a film it has that person worked on other films that I like and we talk about directors and stuff but sometimes you'll find a cinematographer and you'll realize oh I like a lot of their films like with Jack Cardiff, for me I love all of his films that he's he worked on so I just I and I ended up learning a lot about the art of cinematography through this film as well and so now I will talk about the film itself and give you my thoughts and feelings about it. I worry that I do too much research about films or maybe it's boring for me to talk about the making of and all that stuff. But for me, I do feel like it enriches my discussion of a film. And when I love a film, I want to know everything about it. I want to know about the casting and what happened on set. And I just overall think it enriches my understanding of it. I hope that y'all like that when I do talk about those things. But the heart of every episode I like to think is my analysis, my thoughts, my feelings. But I'm really glad I did that research because it does give me more to work with and more to think about. And there's so much that this film makes me think and feel And I'm really excited to share it with all of y'all. And I just want to say, I don't bring it up a lot, but I hope during this pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, that all of you are staying safe and that you're doing well. I know this is an upsetting time. It's a scary time, especially here in the United States, since we have a high amount of people dying and really the government response to it has been pretty horrific and appalling and terrible. I find that during this time, films have been even more of a salvation for me, and watching Terrence Malick's work during this time has been really helpful to me. Not only did I watch Days of Heaven and also The Tree of Life during this pandemic, I also watched them during a difficult anniversary, which was the 14th anniversary of my father's passing, and that's been a difficult time for me as well. But both of these these films and Malick's other films that I plan on watching because I did start A Hidden Life as well and I really like that as well. Just exploring Malick's work, learning about him, reading about him, it's been a really good distraction I guess you could say. It's been a comfort to enter these worlds that he's created for us. I'm glad I chose these films and I'm glad I chose Days of Heaven to explore during this time. I really feel like if you've not watched a lot of Terrence Malick, this would be the time to do it. If you're looking for films that are substantial, that are an experience, that are immersive, that are really about the big questions and the essential subjects of life, I think he is your director. I think there's a gravity to his work and a depth to his work that you don't find in a ton of directors, but at the same time he's accessible. I find him accessible, especially something like Days of Heaven. I think a lot of people would like this film and it just has a beauty about it. So I just wanted to say that I hope all of you are doing okay during the pandemic. I have tried my best to continue to do episodes during the pandemic because I like to think that maybe they help people or they are a comfort to those of you who are listening and if they are, I'm very proud of that and I'm glad that my voice or my discussion of a film can be helpful to you or just enhance your life for an hour or two, right? Although all of my episodes are two hours now, I'm sorry. I have a lot to say. I apologize. I really do. But they have to be the length they have to be. So Days of Heaven is set in 1916. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through the film talking about different things. It's going to be pretty chronological for the most part. But I'm also going to talk about certain themes as well. I really wanted to talk about the first half of the film. For me, the film is set into into two parts, really, the way I view it. And the first part is Bill and Abby and Linda during the harvest in Texas, where they're working the land, working the fields. And the second part is their life with the farmer. So to me, it's pretty, it's set into two parts for me. And I think the first part, the harvest, is the stronger part and the most compelling part for me that is the part I think that is the most beautiful and is almost close to a silent film in a way in the second part we get more into the love triangle we get more into the human drama of lying to the farmer and and the murder and it gets a little bit more dramatic I guess you could say or melodramatic whereas the first part is very meditative almost and the imagery is just stunning and something about that first part really takes me over and stays with me and I feel it sort of swirling inside me, swirling in my dreams. So the film is set in 1916. It begins in the steel mills of Chicago. Richard Gere is Bill, Brooke Adams is Abby, Linda Manns is Linda, and later on Sam Shepard plays the farmer. Now when this film begins, it really, it begins with the title cards that are photos. They're old black and white photos and many of them are by Lewis Hine and I realized recently about this film that the things about it that haunt me the most are the things right from the beginning of the film. Those black and white photographs, the music, and Linda Manz's voice. Those are the things about this film that stay with me beyond just the imagery in the fields. The wheat fields in particular, when you see the people in them and you see the the golden hour or the magic hour. I have Casey Musgraves on the brain. Can you tell? Golden hour. <laughs> I love that album, by the way. Please listen to it. So those are the things that just percolate in me and stay with me and haunt me. And it's like right there from the beginning right from the beginning. These Lewis Hine photos, they evoke that period. They capture working class people and they capture the poverty. I remember in school seeing Lewis Hines photographs of child laborers, child workers, and how haunting they were to me. And it was children living in the cities mainly at the beginning or at the turn of the 20th century. Often these were immigrant children. They were both boys and girls and they were just always so shocking to me when I saw them of like this idea that children used to work in factories and their faces were smeared with dirt and sometimes they weren't wearing shoes and they looked just, they were young but they looked old. They were young but they looked looked haunted and I see that like in Linda Manza's character. I see that even in Brooke Adams, who's like in her 20s, people who have worked hard and who have been worn down by life because of the hard work that they've had to do, how their bodies have kind of been used up and demolished in some ways, how their their youth has been taken and their lives have been taken in some ways. They were kids who didn't get to be kids, Linda doesn't really get to be a child. She's already grown up and it's in her voice. It's in the way that she sees the world. She's seen a lot for her age and I think that's the shocking thing about Linda's voiceover is that she's a child or she's a teenager, I guess, and yet she talks like an adult. She has the wisdom or the insight of an adult, of someone well beyond her years. She sounds older than she is, really. I think these photos that open the film are also a reminder of how difficult life was at that time and it immediately situates us in the world of the film in the strife and the plight of workers like Richard Gere and Brooke Adams it explains later on why he wants her to get with the farmer why he wants them to have a more comfortable life because they are living in very dire poverty According to Rehearsing the Unexpected, the beginning of the film also includes images by H. H. Bennett, Francis Benjamin Johnston, Chansanetta Emmons, William Notman, and Edie Baskin, who photographed Linda Manns in period style. That's what the book says. So I thought that was interesting. So it's not just Lewis Hine's photographs. When I remembered the film, I thought it was just Lewis Hine completely. It was just his photos, but it's actually several photographers who were working at that time period, and then a contemporary photographer for Linda Manns, and there's that haunting black and white photo of her as the title cards end. And the film begins. And also at the beginning of the film is the music. And the music has haunted me. When I first watched Days of Heaven quite a few years ago, as I told you, I had never heard this music. I had never heard this song before. I listened to some classical music. I'll be honest, Terrence Malick is educating me about classical music. I don't listen to a lot of it on my own. I do listen to modern classical composers like Dustin O'Halloran or Max Richter people like that. Some of them have names I can't pronounce, so I'm not going to try. Johan Johansson was a big one for me. He does films as well, and he recently died like within the last few years. That was really heartbreaking. I listened to a lot of uh, film composers like Alexander Desplat and just different people. Of course, when I have to list them out, I can't remember their names, but I listen to a lot of them. So I'm not as well-versed on classical music, only when I come across it in films usually. And so this song at the beginning of the film is by Camille Saint-Saëns. It's a French name. I was terrified of pronouncing it. Camille Saint-Saëns. I hope I did it justice, and it's the aquarium from a from a suite or a series he did called the Carnival of the Animals, and it is unlike anything I had ever heard before. It, the first time I heard this, I was like, "What." is this this is what (laughs) like i i don't know it has this weird quality to it i love how films bring other things into our lives you might watch a film and discover a writer you like or a song or a photographer one film might send you in a hundred different directions so i remember after seeing this film for the first time i listened to the complete carnival of the animals and i loved it so much aquarium in particular has this otherworldly sound to it it's almost spooky to me, it had like an eerie spookiness. Like, I can't explain it. And other people may feel differently about it, but it just, it like gave me chills. It had a spooky quality to it. And I just wanted to share more information about this composition because I'm fascinated by it. There's this chapter in the book, The Cinema of Terrence Malick. The chapter is called Listening to the Aquarium, The Symbolic Use of Music in Days of Heaven. And they write, quote, the Aquarium was composed in 1886 as part of Saint-Saëns' orchestral suite The Carnival of Animals, a collection of short pieces designed to portray zoological scenes. It's different from the majority of his compositions, primarily classic in style and and concentrating on form and craftsmanship rather than expression. His favorite orchestral genres were the symphony and concerto. The Carnival of Animals, however, can best be described as a series of character pieces, a form made popular by 19th century Romantic composers such as Schumann and Chopin. These were short, descriptive pieces designed to express a certain mood or portray a particular scene. The Aquarium, for example, is is supposed to convey the image of life within an aquarium as it floats slowly along. It accomplishes this through long, melodic lines that gently rise and fall in a wave-like pattern and with slowly changing harmonies that convey a languid, relaxed feel. Most of the rhythmic principles of the melody are appropriately long and of consistent values, although quick, Arpeggiated figures are played over these by the pianos, suggesting reflections of light upon the water's surface. The work's unusual orchestration for two pianos, Celesta and Chamber Orchestra, gives the piece an exotic sound and is suggestive of an aquatic world." I just think it's so interesting that it's included in the film. I don't, I don't know why though, because the wheat fields are not aquatic right? Like there's actually nothing watery about this film at all, except for the ending when Bill is killed by the police and his body is floating in the water. And there's this amazing scene of Richard Gere's face in the water. He actually did that in a, in a fish tank, I think. I think he put his face in a water tank or a fish tank of some kind to create that scene. So I don't know, maybe that's why it's strange is because it has an aquatic quality to it, a liquidy kind of um, thing to it, a watery sound, and yet there's not a lot of water in the film. I listened to that music for years after I saw the film, and I still listen to it. So it's, I think, a good example of the way other parts of a film can really come into your life. So now, every time I hear The Aquarium by that composer, I think of Days of Heaven. I think of Linda Manns. I think of those black and white photos by Lewis Hine. It's like all of these things get interconnected in my mind and I think about them. So a big part of this film is Linda. She is so central to this film for me. I can't even imagine the film without her, Linda Manns. Her presence, her voice, her contributions to the film. And I did a little bit of research about her because I was fascinated by her. I couldn't find a lot. She only had two leading roles in her career in two films. First was Days of Heaven. Another one was called Out of the Blue by Dennis Hopper. And it's recently been restored, partly thanks to the effort of Chloe Sevigny. She has been part of like the Kickstarter. Lots of different people have been part of it. She's not the only one but there has been a really big push to get Out of the Blue restored. It looks like a really good film. I would love to be able to see it eventually. After Out of the Blue, Linda Mann's pretty much retired from acting. She's only sporadically acted since then. She's led a quiet life. She's had her children and a husband. Her last film was The Game, in 1997. I guess she just wasn't interested in it, even though she did such a great job in this film. And I really feel like she's an unconventional female character, too. Like, we don't often see girls portrayed this way in a film. She just has this wonderful, authentic quality to her. Her accent, it's sort of rough around the edges. She has this New York accent. It's very real. You know, it's like a real girl talking on the screen and being on the screen, it doesn't really feel like she's acting necessarily. She has this completely natural presence and you just feel like you're seeing a young girl, a real young girl and hearing her voice and hearing her thoughts And I really love that. I mean, I'm attracted to films about women. Most of the films that I cover on this podcast are films about women. They may not always be directed or written by women, but they focus on them. Focus on women's lives, young girls' lives. That's important to me. Those stories matter to me. And I do see this film as centering a young girl and her voice and her experience. Not only that, a working class young girl. We don't often see that at all. She's honest. She's authentic. She's real she is the voice of the film you're immediately pulled in by her when you hear her voice she's at times she's saying things a girl would say a young girl would say or a child i guess she's speaking from a place of truth and maybe she's the only one who even understands truth Unlike the adults around her who lie and betray, there's a purity about her. And the film begins with that line, me and my brother, me and my brother. I love that. Quote, we used to roam the streets there was people suffering of pain and hunger. Some people, their tongues were hanging out of their mouths, unquote. I love this voiceover. I love voiceover in general. I like imagining that I'm in someone else's mind. And I have that feeling with this film. Even though Linda has had a hard life in the film, she still has this innocence about her, this purity, as I said. A carefreeness about her. You know, when she, Bill, and Abby have to take that trip to the Texas panhandle after Bill hits the man. I don't know, did he kill him? I don't know if it was totally clear, but he had to get out of there. Um, she sees it as an adventure, as something fun, like most kids would. She's very resilient. She kind of just goes with the flow of things. Like, things are always shifting and changing for Linda, One minute they're in Chicago, the next they're in the Texas panhandle. One minute they're sleeping outside, it's cold, she's hungry, and then the next minute she's got great clothes on and she's living a life of luxury with the farmer. And then just as quickly as she has it, it's taken away and she ends up at the girls' home by the end of the film. But then she runs away from the girl's home and you don't know what happens to her, but you have this feeling that no matter what does happen, like Linda's going to make it. (laughs) Linda's going to be okay. She is resilient. She's going to persevere. She's going to survive because she has this great instinct and that she has survived so much already, losing her brother and then losing Abby, essentially. You know, Abby drops her off and, and she's alone in the world it's sad actually with the ending because at the beginning of the film she has her brother she has Abby she has some kind of connection and love and family and then by the end of the film she's completely alone and Abby's alone too once she gets on the train and leaves and Right on the cusp of the First World War too. So there is something sad about that ending. I mean, I might talk about it more later, but I just wanted to bring it up now. There's just something timeless about the character of Linda. She's smart and she's strong and she's insightful with her voiceover and she really gets to the heart of things when she's describing them. Describing the suffering of other people. And there's other quotes that I'll share throughout my analysis. So Linda is really central to this film and I just wanted to acknowledge that and throughout this episode I'll talk more about her but I just wanted to pinpoint some things like right at the beginning me and my brother me and my brother and she's so central like that voice as soon as I heard it I saw the Lewis Hine photographs I heard the the aquarium music and then I heard Linda Manza's voice And I was just completely immersed, completely pulled in. And I was ready to experience this film and watch this story and be in it. And it it just, it's brilliant. So I did want to focus a little bit on the cinematography and the why and what I feel about it. It's such an important part of the film. It's what makes it so beautiful. It's almost a difficult film to talk about because me describing the images Is not the same as seeing the images. And it's often why I think in these episodes I don't talk specifically about visuals. I talk more about stories or characters because how do you describe an image? How do you describe something like that? How do you describe a film that is dependent on those images? and you just have to see them for yourself and they sort of live in your mind and so the the light in this film it's very difficult to describe it is the light of the magic hour it's a light that all of us have seen in our own lives at dusk or dawn right The look of the film, it gives you a feeling, a mood. You know, the music and the light just stayed with me forever after I watched this film. I think there are films you watch that make you feel like you're touching another world. That you become one with what is on the screen and the film fills your mind for days. You feel the film with you. It absorbs every part of you. That is a masterpiece that's how i would define one or why i would call something a masterpiece You know it, but you can't always describe it. You feel something elemental about life has been revealed to you, like a barrier has been pierced. You enter that mystery and that all. It's what the best poems and books and songs do too. You're just in the clouds. You're in the clouds when you watch something like this. Even though Terrence Malick's background is in philosophy and the writing about his films can get very academic, as I said, it's not my taste. The films themselves don't necessarily feel philosophical. By that I mean, you don't have to know a damn thing about philosophical theory. You don't have to have been a philosophy major or gone to college to connect to and to love and to understand his films. I do think you feel them. And I think they register in your subconscious and in this purely emotional part of you. You definitely see the magic hour in this film. There is no sun, but there is light and it's on the horizon. And it bathes everything, the people, the land, in this golden glow as the workers work in the wheat fields. And I love Malick's focus on nature, on humanity's interaction with nature. I think that's another powerful part of the film, is the way he captures people on the land, connected to the land. I think we're very disconnected from land and from the earth at this time. I think it's why climate change has been able to get so bad. Is our alienation from nature. We don't harvest things ourselves in the fields anymore. Regular, everyday Americans don't. I think a lot of that work is done by immigrants and they are exploited often and not paid enough. And that work can be very backbreaking and difficult. But the majority of Americans are disconnected from the way that food is gathered the way that a lot of things are are gathered. The industrialization has done that. We're disconnected from from those things. We're disconnected from the harvest. We don't go out and harvest land anymore the way that farmers did. There is, uh, there's this divide between us and nature, I think, or we're trying to dominate nature, control nature, and of course you can't. And there's also sort of a contrast between those steel mills in the city. Abby and Bill and Linda, they're coming from a city. They're coming from an urban environment with large buildings and big machinery and being indoors and in the steel mills and the fire and all of that. They go to the Texas Panhandle and it's like a totally different world. The huge open fields, the wheat, you know, being outdoors, the light, the sky. It's such a big contrast for them. They have to work, but But in both places, they have to work. Like, in the steel mills, they work. And on the land, they work. I just think the beginning of the film is so powerful because of the way it looks at nature and humanity's interaction with nature. Our dependence on it. Our mercy to it. How it engulfs us. Overwhelms us. How we're nothing next to it. You know, you see these huge fields and then you see the workers and they look so tiny. And the thing is, is that I live a little bit kind of in the landscapes that Malik films. The rural the forest meadows fields of wildflowers grass trees swaying in the wind clouds I live with that I notice it all and I feel like he makes these everyday things majestic sacred touched with the divine almost like there is something divine about that magic hour and seeing the light in that way there is just something divine about it and he captured that on film. The way he shows nature in all of his films, The Tree of Life in particular, it's like, I do feel connected to the land because I come from a rural background. Like, I live in the rural south. I grew up in a town in North Carolina. I grew up with trees and forests and meadows, and you know, I grew up with all that. Played outside a lot growing up, and so I've always felt a very deep connection to nature, and so nature is a big part of this film as well and that that field and then that one house in the middle of it. So I do want to talk about the beginning of the film and the time of the harvest and then I think I'll transition into the second half of the film as well. So as I said Bill gets in trouble at the steel mill when he hits a man and he has to run away. So he, Abby, and Linda decide to go harvest wheat in the Texas panhandle. And you see the precarious nature of their lives. Suddenly, they're uprooted. But of course, they didn't have much to begin with. It's not like they have a lot of things to sell or get rid of or a lot of things to take with them. They are ready to leave. They don't have a lot of material possessions. They don't have a lot of uh, connections. They just leave. And for Linda, I think it's more of like an adventure. Bill and Abby decide that when they go to Harvest in Texas, that they're going to say that they're brother and sister and s- instead of boyfriend and girlfriend are lovers. They feel like people will talk, people will say things, and they just don't want to deal with it. So they get hired on this farm in Texas. It's massive, and there's just this one large mansion-like house in the middle of all this land, all this wheat. The house is lonely, and so is the man inside it and he's named the farmer. Bill eventually learns that this farmer, and that's all he's ever called in the film, he's never given a first name. Although when it was being filmed, he was called Charles so that Linda Manns could remember his name. Bill learns that the farmer has an illness and that he doesn't have a long time to live. And eventually he tells Abby or convinces Abby to have a relationship with the farmer and even encourages her to marry him so that they can inherit at his money and get rich and really this is their ultimate downfall this decision jack fisk has been a production designer on terrence malick's films for a really long time ever since his first film badlands and he talked about the house in an interview he said quote terry showed me the photo of a house that he liked it was an American house of the turn of the century with a porch. He liked the idea of a belvedere because the wheat was like an ocean. From these houses, widows would look for their husbands who were lost at sea. They had widow walks. Of course, I looked at a little bit of Edward Hopper, but the inspiration came from other elements. It was to take advantage of the wheat being like an ocean. It was to give vertical lines in a very horizontal landscape. So we looked for towers and everything that was vertical to make it stand out. Being vertical, the house just popped out from the landscape. It became a kind of character on its own, unquote. I was also attracted to Days of Heaven because recently I've really fallen in love with the art of Edward Hopper. He's this American artist that most of you probably know, and he has this famous painting of a house that's just in the middle of a field, and a lot of people have compared that painting to the house in Days of Heaven. and so when I was learning about Edward Hopper and falling in love with his art, of course, I always knew about Hopper. I'd always liked his art. But just lately, like, you ever have an artist or, you know, a musician or a director who, you know, you know of them, you've seen some of their work, but all of a sudden it just clicks with you at a certain part in your life and you just get it and it becomes very important to you? That's what happened with me and Edward Hopper, where I just got obsessed. Like, I have a book of his art. I bought a few poetry books, of poems that were inspired by his art. I've just been reading things about him and he's a very fascinating person, but his art is really compelling to me. The loneliness of it, people who are solitary in a lot of these interiors and the way he used light in his art is very compelling. Like, I'm not going to go all into it and go on a tangent about it, but he just captured the loneliness, I think, that is at the heart of the American experience where we're so disconnected and detached we're very lonely in this country and we're very individualistic and separated into our own little worlds. And I think you see that with this pandemic where it's very hard to get collective action. It's hard to get people to care about other people and about other people's well being and other people's health. And it is a big problem in this country, the inability to care about others because we're so separated and disconnected. And so I feel like Hopper's artwork captured some of that loneliness of the American experience that is with us still. When I was going through Hopper's art, I came across this video online that was talking about uh, films that were inspired or had some imagery inspired by Hopper. And I actually discovered a few films through that video. And one of them showed Days of Heaven. And I just got to thinking like, wow, I haven't seen Days of Heaven in a long time. I think I'd like to revisit it. And then that led to me thinking about this episode. So one thing can just lead to another and inspire another another. So Edward Hopper was an inspiration in in some of the film, I think, and I even see Hopper inspiration in some of Malick's other films, like The Tree of Life, for instance. I don't know, some of the windows and the interiors, and I think when I was doing my research on The Tree of Life, somebody did mention that Hopper was an inspiration for the art direction, the way that the interiors are kind of spare, and there's not a lot of clutter in them, and the use of the windows, And Hopper had a few paintings where it's just empty rooms. It's just light coming in through a window. And light is always central to Hopper. And so I see that in Malick's work too, his interest in light. Nestor, in an interview, mentioned that there were other artistic inspirations for Days of Heaven, um, including Andrew Wyeth and also Vermeer. The way the light came through the windows and the interiors, that was inspired by Vermeer. And Vermeer is one of my favorite paintings. Painters of all time. I absolutely love Vermeer. Andrew Wyeth, I've wanted to learn more about. I don't know as much about him, but um, his painting, Christina's World, has always been very evocative to me. But I haven't, I don't know a lot about him. I haven't learned a lot about him. I just feel like so many of the pastoral scenes in this film, the nature scenes, the fields, look like paintings. I mean, they really could be paintings. As they're working on the farm, the farmer sees Abby, and he starts to get very interested in her, and at one point, Linda's voiceover says, I guess she's Imagining the farmer and what he thinks of Abby. And she says that he doesn't know what it was about her. Maybe it was the way the wind blew through her hair. Like, I love that part of the voiceover. That's what, when I talk about the voiceover being like poetry almost, that's what I mean. It's like those little details of, well, maybe he loved the way the wind blew through her hair. That could be a line from a poem for sure. I was really compelled by the way that Terrence Malick focused on the workers in this film. The way he focused on the working class, on migrants, it reminds me a little bit of uh, an Agnes Varda film that I've covered called The Gleaners and I, where she looked at people who... After a harvest, they would come in and collect the food that was left on the ground. They were gleaners. They would glean that food. Her film looked at art that depicted gleaners and then she talked to modern day gleaners. The film came out around 2000 and that film showed people stooping in fields doing the work of gleaning. So it's not exactly the same because it's very different to harvest and then to glean, but the imagery was kind of similar to me. And at times in the film, they are stooping over as they're working the field. They're having to pick up the wheat and the the big masses of wheat that have been cut. And uh, so it just kind of reminded me of those images of the gleaners and the work that the body does, right? The work that the working class do. I'm interested in that. I'm, work, I'm interested in workers and laborers and their lives. I think this film gives dignity to their lives. It's not a political film, but it does focus on the working classes and the downtrodden. Those struggling to survive in America in the early 20th century. Linda is their voice for a lot of this film. It's a historical film, but the people on screen are living and breathing. They're not encased in glass and far away from us. They feel like they are flesh and blood. Like how many times do you see a historical film and it focuses on the rich? It focuses on beautiful people with beautiful dresses and beautiful houses. This is a historical film that focuses on workers, on people who have grime on their face and have dirty clothes. So the past is not idealized. It's not made into this perfect world or something like there's struggle and strife and difficulty and all of that the land is beautiful the nature is beautiful but we see the workers exhaustion There's like a scene where Abby seems to be kind of struggling and Bill helps her up at one time while they're working in the field. So it really shows the exhaustion as well. And Abby definitely starts to get worn down by the work that they have to do. And at one point, Abby, she talks to the farmer. They start to talk and he asks her where she's from and where she's going. She says they go all over and then she says, you think I like it? Like, she says it really bluntly to him. You think I like it? Like, you think I like living like this? You think that I like getting on trains and going everywhere and never having a settled life? You know, that's what's implied there. You know, she's young. She's in her 20s, but there's an oldness about her. And it's the same with Linda. It's this weariness, this res- this resignation to the pain and hardship of life. Bill's face is beautiful. Richard Gere is beautiful and young. But the women in the film, they're already weary and worn down. There's already just this exhaustion. Like sometimes Brooke Adams' face, the way she conveyed it in her face and her eyes of just like this weariness and this exhaustion with life. One of the more heartbreaking things is when she has this big tear in one of her sleeves and it just speaks to the deterioration of her life and and the desperation of her life and the poverty she doesn't even have money for a a new dress or or something like that she has nothing no security no life of her own no real freedom for you cannot be free when you are owned by the rich and controlled by them. I think a lot of this film is also about money and power, about the haves and the have-nots. It's not a political film. I don't think Malik is trying to send a message or anything, but it is clear that the farmer has so much and he has power over these people. The bosses in the fields have power over them. There's a time when they threaten to fire Bill. I don't know, I think he talks back or there's Not picking enough, or something like that, and they threaten to fire them. They quiet down because they don't want to lose their job. You feel the powerlessness of these people. They are there, they have to be there in order to survive. They don't necessarily want to be doing this work. That's still happening today. People are still going through that. They're still owned by the rich, they're still under the boot of the rich. I mean, just during this pandemic, the rich have gotten even richer, while people are having to go in line to food banks and struggle to feed their family. And there's no respite. There's no help for them. It's just a terrible time, really. And in Linda's voiceover, she talks about some of their work. She talks about how from from the time the sun came up to the time it went down, they were working nonstop. Quote, they don't need you. They can always get somebody else, unquote. The workers have no choices or power. They're at the mercy of the bosses on the farm and of the farmer himself. They're disposable. They're expendable. Their lives don't matter. And I found myself wondering what has changed. No, there's not child labor anymore. And there are more workplace protections. And things are not exactly the same as 1916. But that class struggle, that divide between the rich and the poor, the haves and the have-nots, all of that is still with us. And it's still embedded in the American experience. And once the farmer starts to fall in love with Abby, Bill encourages her to have a relationship with him because he knows that they can use that to their advantage. On the one hand, it's it's terrible what they're doing. On the other hand... Nobody else is going to save them or help them. They are completely on their own. This guy has a lot of money, and it's tempting. It's almost irresistible to try and take advantage of him and see what they can get out of it. But he's basically pressuring her to use her sexuality to manipulate a man that they can then take advantage of. And they're talking about this during a scene where they're walking in a stream. It's so odious what they're talking about, you know, taking advantage of another person. On top of that, someone who's Dying, who is sick, you know, it's ugly. It's an ugly thing at the same time. They are poor and they are desperate and they want a better life. And him showing interest in Abby opens up a possibility for them. And it's understandable, I think, that they cross that line. But Bill is the agent of this, he is the one encouraging it, but at the same time, I mean Abby is part of it too. She goes along with it at first. It's weird how he's he's telling her to do this and then he washes her feet. Uh, it's this tender moment at that stream and it's contrasted with what he's just asked her. He's asking her to do this and then he's washing her feet and then now that I think about it, it's actually kind of an omen um, or it kind of portends the ending of the film when Bill will meet his fate in in water in a river right or some kind of a yeah, I think it's a river that he falls in when he gets shot by the police after he's killed the farmer and they've gone on the run. And so it's interesting how it really begins there in that stream in a way, in in that water. And then at the end, that's where Bill will die. And Bill ends up dying because of this whole plot, because of this whole scheme, because after it comes to light, the farmer is so enraged by that betrayal. I mean, it all begins with that. But at the same time, and there's this haunting scene where they're walking past the big house in the evening and you see Bill looking back at the house and he's looking up at it and Richard Gere's face is so haunting. It's covered with shadow. There's this longing in his face in that scene. A longing for more for comfort, for a life of more than just working for someone else and being spit up and chewed out. It's like he's tired of being poor. And I think that Abby is tired too. They're both tired. And that's why they put this into motion. But it will be their undoing. They are putting something into motion that they cannot reverse and they cannot take it back. That's the tragedy of the film. And then we go into the second half of the film, which is life with the farmer. I mean, I guess you could argue argue there's maybe three parts of this film. There's the harvest part, the life with the farmer, and then after they have to flee and go on the run and Bill is killed. So I guess you could argue that. But for me, it's like two parts. And so the harvest ends and Abby and the farmer have a relationship. wants her to stay, and he lets... Bill and Linda stay too since he thinks that they're all siblings. I think he thinks Linda's her sister too and in the original script Linda was supposed to be her sister and what follows is a period of their lives that is both dangerous and beautiful. It's dangerous because they're lying to the farmer. Bill is Abby's lover. He's not her brother and she continues to see him even after she ends up marrying the farmer but it's also the first time in their lives when they have material comfort and financial security. They used to wear ragged clothes. Now their clothes are beautiful. They used to work long hours in the field. Now they live in luxury and they don't have to do anything. It's the first time when they're not working themselves to death and they can actually live. They can actually experience life and not just survive it. But this life will come at a cost and they won't know it until it's too late. And as a viewer, there's a part of you that's happy to see these characters with new clothes on and a taste of the good life. Why shouldn't they have that? You understand why they wanted it, why they'd do anything to get it because you want it too. I'm a working class person. I've worked at a factory. It was very difficult work. You know, I am a working class person. I know how difficult life can be. I know about financial struggle. I know about all that. And I deal with health issues. I deal with both mental and physical health issues. I am someone who does live on the margins, who does live a precarious existence. I definitely see myself in Bill and Abby, even though my life is not exactly the same as them. I know what, you know, working at a factory does to you and the way it numbs you and numbs your mind and how old you feel. I mean, I worked at a factory right after high school. I started, I graduated high school in 2007. And then I went to work at a factory in 2008 for a few months. And um, it was right before the recession started. And then when the recession came, I lost my job. It was grueling work. It was really difficult. I worked as a sewer in a factory. You know, my father had died a few years before. My mom and I were struggling without him. And we were Living in poverty and struggling to pay bills. That's why I went and got this job. That's why I did it. I didn't go to college the way other people my age do. I went and worked at this factory and I felt like I did age. I mean, honestly, when I think about it, you know, losing my dad when I was 16. And I talk a lot about it on the podcast. And, you know, this anniversary, the 14th anniversary of it. Watching Malik's films has been a real comfort. But it's like his death aged me. Like, I know what it feels like to feel old, to feel like you're not really young. Like, I don't feel youthful. I'm 30. I don't feel youthful. You know, I don't feel like other people probably feel at this age. Like Their lives are ahead of them and hopeful and full of energy and vitality. And I have never felt like that, at least not since he died when I was 16, like I've never felt young or youthful or carefree or any of those things. I have felt much more like Linda or Abby, that just weariness and that exhaustion and that resignation and like that's more of what I have felt is just that struggle of like, well here's another day for me to survive. You don't often see that in films. So I I understand, I guess what I'm saying is like, I understand that desire for more. I understand that desire for a comfortable life. You know, like there's things I want, not You know, there's so many things I want and I can't have them. And we all want things. Bill especially wants more. He doesn't see what he has, what he had with Abby and Linda. He admits that near the end. And I got to thinking, you know, I do think there's a time of Eden for these characters, a time of paradise, but I couldn't decide which part was the paradise for them. Was the part with the farmer the paradise when they had nice clothes? Or was the part when they were all three just together before the farmer? Was that paradise? Because once they meet the farmer and they lie to him and that lie comes out, that's kind of the fall. That's the loss of innocence in a way for all of them, but especially for Linda. But I got to thinking like, which was the paradise? Which was the Eden time, the Edenic time? I don't know. Maybe it was just when all three of them were together on the train going to the Panhandle, or maybe it was the time when they were with the farmer. Bill didn't see how good he had it, even though they were struggling. But it's better than being dead right? I mean, by the end of the film, Bill is dead. And all of that is set into motion by lying to the farmer. He's dead. Abby goes her way. Linda's at the girl's home. They're separated, at least at the beginning, even though they were poor, even though they were struggling, and they were having to go through all that. At least they were together. They were a family. There was a wholeness there that they have now lost, There's a really stunning scene where one day Linda asks Abby why she's doing this. I guess she means staying and leading the farmer on. I guess Linda sort of has figured out that Abby, well, she knows Abby and Bill are together, right? She knows that they're lovers. And so she knows that she must understand that Abby is using the farmer for the material comfort. Abby says that when she was Linda's age, she was all alone in the world. She used to work all day wrapping cigars. She never saw the daylight and she was always inside. So she was basically like a child laborer. She says, compared to that, it's not so bad. So again, I like how this film centers the women in their stories. It's actually one of Malik's few films to do this. His later films have pretty much focused on men. The women in Days of Heaven are relatable and they feel real to me. They're not idealized versions of women the way somebody like the mother in the Tree of Life is. These are women who are rough around the edges. They're struggling. They're surviving. They're getting by as best they can. You know, Abby is an interesting character she does end up marrying the farmer, but she genuinely falls in love with him. The love triangle is interesting. At first, she did marry him for the material comfort and the money, but she ends up having feelings for him, and I think Abby feels guilt about what she's doing. She feels bad. Bill really doesn't for much of the film, and I think that's what tears them apart eventually. I think she feels used. I think that he is using her as an instrument to get wealth and what he wants. She's not really a person to him. She's just a means to an end. He's using her perhaps like other men in the past have used her. I don't think she realizes that at first maybe or maybe it's later that she realizes that. Bill says he hates what's happening. He hates the way the farmer looks at her. If he hates it so much why doesn't he stop her? Why doesn't he tell her to stop? I think in a way both of these men don't really see her as human. To Bill she's a way to access a better life. To the farmer, I think she's kind of a fantasy. Someone to save him. But she's not perfect either. And she's living a lie when she first marries the farmer. She is taking advantage of him. She's using him to have a better life. But who can blame her when she's had such a hard existence, right? And she suffered so much. And there's a really tender scene where between the farmer and Abby. He says, you make me feel like I've come back to life. Sometimes it's like you're right inside of me. It's a really beautiful scene and he sort of picks up on how she's holding back and he feels like he doesn't really know her in some ways. I think on the one hand, she's playing a part, a fantasy, and her own feelings are conflicted. She has sympathy for the farmer. She has love for Bill. She feels guilty at using the farmer and lying to to him. So I think Abby's really conflicted in a lot of ways. I do think the film is slower in this part once Abby is married to the farmer. I think the beginning of the film is a bit stronger when it's focusing on the workers and the land. The second half of the film is much more about the human drama. And I wonder sometimes if Malik is not quite as strong at that when he has to look at specific people instead of archetypes or ideas. I've just felt... I guess when I was watching the film, I kind of lost a little bit more interest near the second half or during the second half because the first part was so compelling to me of the people working the land and now we're we're much more in the human drama and the love triangle and the melodrama and I, I mean, I still think it's interesting. I think it's ultimately very tragic what happens you know, once Abby does fall in love with the farmer, everything changes with Bill. And there's this one scene, it's, it's near the end or around the end, right before the murder of the farmer. Abby tells Bill that she's sorry, and he realizes that she is in love with the farmer. And this is the scene where he says, I didn't know what I had with you. And there's an intensity on Richard Gere's face that is so telling. Like, I thought his acting was really powerful in this film. I don't think he always gets the credit he deserves for being a really great actor. You feel the loss in that moment. When he realizes he should not have encouraged her in this. That he should not have done this. He's lost her, but he caused it. That's the ultimate tragedy of it: is He's lost this woman that he loves, but he's the reason that it happened. Because he pushed her into it through his obsession with having more. Having money. And I guess it would be his greed. Or his, his longing for Power or for more for money, his longing for money and desire for it. That is what motivated him was the money. And what they could get out of the farmer if he died. And of course, after this scene, Bill is leaving and him and Abby are outside and the farmer sees them together. Throughout the film, he's had suspicions about them. He's not stupid. But at first he thinks it's more of like an incestuous thing. <laughs> but then I think he finally realizes that there's a relationship between the two of him and he's been conned and he's been lied to. He won't even listen to anybody who tells him that they are cons or that they're lying to him but he finally sees it with his own eyes and that's when everything falls apart that is when the world gets very very dark because he is enraged absolutely enraged and it's no surprise that then we see the locusts and it's very biblical and they're everywhere. They come into the fields and it's like a plague. And it's almost like the reason that they come is because of uh because of this betrayal and this terrible lie. They're almost like this manifestation of that, right? Of this terrible act, and they captured the atmosphere of dread and and all of that, I think. And they have this stunning locust scene where everybody goes out at night with the lanterns and they catch the locusts and They put him in this large bonfire. In a way, it's like the farmer has lost his innocence. He was kind of an innocent character in a way. He seemed very naive. He seemed kind of unsophisticated about the ways of the world. Again, I see the rural-urban divide there where people in cities are seen as more as harsher and like more uh, street smart and things like that. And then somebody like the farmer in his rural world, he's separated from that. He's separated from the harshness of the city. He seems more innocent. something like that and they come and sort of corrupt him and corrupt that innocence. Um, He's been made a fool of and you can feel his rage. The anger. I mean there's this one scene where you can see his face in the lantern light and he looks demonic. Like Bill tries to talk to him. Sam Shepard looked demonic in some of those scenes and he throws the lantern down and it it starts to cause this huge fire it's like a manifestation of what he's feeling inside he tells them to let it burn he wants to burn the world down because he's been betrayed so the film it also engages with these very primal emotions greed, lust, jealousy, betrayal, sex. I mean, there is no sex scenes in it, but the sexual attraction between these people, it just all comes to the surface. And at one point, you can see Abby and Bill are silhouetted against the raging fire, and it's a fire they helped create. It's what they put into motion by lying to the farmer, and it's now out of control. It's now out of their hands. At one point, the farmer, like, points a gun at Abby and ties her to the post of the house. I was like, what the hell? Like, that's not okay. It was like a very abusive moment. And I think it shows that there was something hiding in him the whole time. Like, he seemed like this nice and good guy. But this very dark side of him emerges. Was it wrong for Abby and Bill to lie? Of course. But you don't go around pointing guns at women and tying them up because of your hurt feelings. Like, to me, his reaction was very extreme and over the top. He just lost it absolutely lost it. And then he takes that gun and he's threatening Bill. And then Bill stabs him with the screwdriver right in the heart. Once again, the three of them are on the run. Very interesting how violence is part of their lives. Bill attacks the man at the steel mill and they have to go to the Texas panhandle. Then he kills the farmer and the three of them have to run off again. And now he's a fugitive. But I guess he was kind of a fugitive the whole time. And Linda says, no one is perfect. You just have half devil and half angel in you. That's a very memorable thing that she says in the film throughout the film she has all these different lines you know half devil half angel she has these ways of really getting to the heart of what's happening on the screen and what's happening internally with the characters and what they are feeling and that's just another strength of the film I mean I could have quoted so many things that she said right sometimes it's hard with these episodes like to choose what to what to use what not like you can't can't say everything that was in the film, right? Something that was sad to me was how much Abby blamed herself for everything, because Linda tells us that in the voiceover, that Abby blamed herself, she's gonna try to live a better life and make up for what she's done. She really blamed herself for everything. I mean, she was part of it, but she wasn't the whole thing. I'm sure she feels like, oh, I should have not gone along with what Bill wanted me to do, of course. She has to take responsibility for the role that she played, but he was was equally to blame as well both of them were to blame and eventually they have the shootout and bill is shot in the water abby and linda basically witness that or they see his like dead body in the water it's a very heartbreaking scene when you think about everything they've been through and it ends that way the farmer is murdered bill is murdered and these two women have to somehow pick up the pieces of their lives and keep going abby drops Linda off at a girl's home or a girl's school I guess and then she boards this train that seems to be taking American soldiers into World War II and I thought that was an interesting way to include that historical context in the film like would Bill have been drafted if things had gone a different way would she have been waving goodbye to Bill as he was sent off to World War I you don't know You know, you don't know what would have happened and you don't know what happens to Abby either. She's on that train and then she's gone. I think it would be really interesting like if somebody wrote like a, what is it called? Is it like fan fiction? I've never done anything like this, but it would be so interesting to imagine Abby's life. That's why I love films like this. I love ambiguity. I love that open-endedness because it allows you to fill in the gaps for yourself or it imagines you, it, it allows you a space to think about what would have happened to the character so you can make up anything you want about Abby. I like to think that she did find a guy and she did get married and she did have children and she was able to make a life for herself and to move on from the trauma, really, of losing these two men that she loved and that she cared about but then her life could have gone a different way. You know, she's very alone in the world. She could have uh, continued to struggle on her own. She could have got into some bad things, and you don't know what could have happened, and then we see Linda sneaking out of that girl's school or that girl's home with another girl that she's met, so she kind of has a pal and a friend now. They're gonna go meet a boy or something, and he never shows up, and so the two of them are just walking together down these train tracks as the film ends, and that. That's just you know, that's just how it ends. And you just imagine like, well, what's gonna happen to Linda? (laughs) Like, what is she gonna do? And what will become of her? And you like to think that things worked out for her, but things don't work out for everybody all the time. But these two women, like I said, have to pick up the pieces of their lives and figure out a way to move on. You know, Linda's lost her brother. Abby's lost her lover, her boyfriend, a man she cared about, and also lost her husband. She's kind of like a double widow in a weird way way where she lost her husband and then she also lost her lover at the same time. So these two women are just kind of alone in the world. Abby knows that she can't take care of Linda. She doesn't have a job. She can't take her everywhere. So I think she does do the right thing in taking her to that girl's home because at least she knows that they'll take care of her. Although did she inherit money from the farmer? Is that made clear in the film? Now I'm wondering. Maybe she inherited a bit of money from the farmer and she uses that to put Linda in that that school. I don't know. Again, it's just open-ended. It's ambiguous for you to kind of make up your own narrative and you know think about what happened to these women such a beautiful film like i hope that hope that you liked my thoughts about it it's one of those films it's definitely one of my favorites by malick i think it holds up i'm just in love with it i can't believe it's like 40 years old now just a stunning beautiful film and i'm really glad malick gave us more films you know he didn't stop with days of heaven even though it took him quite a few decades to get going again so i'll stop here I now want to give a shout out to my awesome patrons, Christine, David, Eddie, Jenny, Lane, Haroon, Thomas, Kelsey, Aaron, Max, Tyler, Juan, Till, JD, Vanessa, Paulina, Olivia, Jesse, Feminist Overlord, and Michelle. Thank you all so much for being patrons and for supporting the work that I am doing. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, keep watching great films. Bye for now.